As Tim said, our first reading is from the book of Ruth, chapter 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you, where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed me earlier, You haven't run after the younger men, whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good. Let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. We continue our reading in Ruth, starting at chapter 4 and verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. 
When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabites, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead man with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabites, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord! who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. 
Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of David. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. So, Ruth, the poor widow from Moab, needs a husband who's going to marry her. She had the looks. She was a pretty girl. She turned men's heads. But she didn't have any money. And she'd been married to Marlon for up to ten years and had given him no children. So there was a strong possibility that she was infertile. That meant, however attractive men might have found her, she wasn't a good marriage prospect. And that was serious. What weighed even more heavily against her was the fact that she came from Moab. And Moabite women were bad news. You only had to look at the origins of the Moabite nation to understand that they were best avoided. They were descended from Lot, Abraham's nephew, who'd been living in Sodom. He and his wife and his two daughters escaped the city before it was destroyed, but Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt when she turned and looked back at the burning sulphur raining down on the land behind them. So Lot and his two daughters ended up living in a cave in the mountains, too afraid to go back down into the plain. Lot's two daughters had been engaged to be married, but their fiancés had refused to leave the city with them, so they were left alone with their dad. And as time passes by, the older daughter becomes concerned that at this rate she isn't going to have any children. So on successive nights, the girls get their father drunk and go to bed with him, and they both become pregnant. And the son born of this incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter was Moab, the father of the Moabite tribe. So any Israelite who knew their Bible history would suppose that there was a real chance that any Moabite woman would behave just like her ancestral mother. The stereotype was there for her to conform to. The principle, like mother, like daughter, was more than enough to put anyone off marrying the attractive widow from Moab. And then, of course, there was that incident when Israel was wandering in the wilderness before they entered the Promised Land, when it was the women of Moab who seduced the men of Israel and enticed them into worshipping their gods, causing a plague that killed thousands of them. So if ever you needed confirmation that Moabite women were just people to be avoided, this sordid episode from Numbers 25 provided all the evidence that people needed. So this stereotyped image of a Moabite woman, they're all like that, you know, Uh, was enough to make them see any woman from Moabite as a potential sexual predator who was just set on leading you astray. And on that basis, no man in his right mind would have anything 
to do with Ruth. So her origins count heavily against her when it comes to trying to find a respectable husband. And Naomi, her mother-in-law, decides that it's time that Ruth takes matters into her own hands. Even if that means that she does behave a little bit like your stereotypical Moabite woman. And, uh, yeah, there is something quite brazen about Naomi's plan, which actually amounts to little more than getting Ruth to seduce Boaz as a ploy to get him to marry her. I'm sure there are a few fans of Poldark here. Uh, You might remember that episode a few weeks ago where Demelza Poldark and Kitty Despard are both talking about how they got their respective husbands by slipping into their bed one night. Well, actually, that is exactly what Naomi is suggesting that Ruth should do. She was to bathe, put on some perfume, her best clothes, do everything to make herself irresistible. In the story of Judith, when she sets out to find a way of getting into the bedchamber of the commander of the army, besieging her people so that she can murder him, she bathes her body in water, she anoints herself with precious ointment, she combs her hair, puts on a tiara, puts on the clothes and jewellery she used to wear for her husband. She did everything to make herself irresistible in the eyes of any man who saw her, and that is precisely what Ruth did when she prepared to go to the threshing floor that night. When Boaz had gone to bed in a good mood at the end of the day, she was to take careful note of which bed was his and join him there. People ponder exactly what Naomi meant when she told Ruth to uncover Boaz's feet and lie down next to him. Was she to pull the bedclothes off of him? Was that why he woke up in the middle of the night with a start? Because he was cold? You can make a good case, actually, for suggesting that Ruth was to uncover herself and lie down next to him, which is why it made sense for her to say, spread the corner of your garment over me, because that's what needed to happen. The same imagery is used to portray God's relationship with Israel in Ezekiel 16.8. In either case, it was a, a bold move on Ruth's part. She was gambling everything. What would Boaz do? How would he respond? There was a real chance that he'd simply be horrified by her behaviour, send her away, tell everyone the following morning that this Moabite woman, just like a typical Moabite woman, had come to his bed in the middle of the night. She was nothing better than a prostitute. Or he could have taken advantage of her being in his bed and enjoyed a one-night stand without any responsibility towards her afterwards. Or he might do the honourable thing and take her under his wing and make her his wife. That's what she asks. That's what this whole rigmarole is supposed to lead to. But the outcome was far from certain. And what do we make of Ruth in this? That night she behaves exactly like your archetypal Moabite sexual predator. And yet up until that time, this point in time, we've thought better of her than this. Until, every, until now, everything is about her has led us to suppose that she is a woman of virtue her loyalty to her mother-in-law, her hard work gleaning in the fields, the way she's impressed everyone by her decision to leave her father and mother and come and live as a foreigner in a strange land and to make the Lord her refuge. And even that night, as as they whisper together in bed on the threshing floor, Boaz says, everybody knows, Ruth, that you're a woman of noble character, a woman to be reckoned with. So she's complicated, on the one hand, there is, there is so much good in her. On the other hand, she, she does this, which we think actually is a bit unworthy of her. She wouldn't be the first woman of virtue driven to desperate measures 
as a result of the impossible situation in which she finds herself. What do you make of her? Do you judge her? Do you sympathise with her? Do you find you just don't know what to make of her? We're left pondering. All credit to Boaz, though. He does the honourable thing here. He doesn't condemn Ruth. He doesn't take advantage of her vulnerability. Actually, he not only agrees to marry her, he also takes steps to buy the land that Naomi is putting up for sale so her cash flow problem is going to be solved and she can continue to live there. A man of means, good standing, he absolutely does the right thing. So we might ponder, why didn't he act a little bit quicker? Why wait until Ruth comes to his bed that night? Why not take the initiative? Why not say, Ruth, I could solve your problems. You come, marry me, be my wife, I'll buy the land that your mother-in-law is selling, and all your problems are solved. And we know that Boaz found her a highly attractive woman. But there was a big age gap. He may have felt that Ruth was way out of his league. He expressed his surprise that out of all the beds she might have slipped into, she came into his, even though there were lots of far younger men with a bit of money about them, and she might have gone to them instead of him. He didn't want to take advantage of her with his seniority and his old age. She was a a far better prospect for a younger man, so he didn't want to push himself forwards and, and gain an attractive wife by just, you know, saying, I could solve your financial problems if you married me. That he was cautious in that respect. He was also aware that he wasn't first in line. In a situation where people feel on hard times and had a bit of land to sell, as was the case with Naomi, it fell to the next of kin as their duty to buy the property and keep it in the family. Someone who acted in this capacity was known as a kinsman redeemer. Someone who, by virtue of being next of kin, acted to stop the land from being sold off out of the family. And it was their job to redeem it and the person in poverty from their plight. Naomi was selling her property. It was incumbent upon her family to redeem it for her, but there was someone other than Boaz, someone closer to her in the family, who had first refusal on the option of buying the property. So Boaz is taking a step back and letting this other guy go first. He had first refusal on the land. He had, actually, first refusal on Ruth the widow should he want to marry her. And at first sight, this man is keen on buying the property, adding to his estate, but when he learns that Ruth is going to be thrown into the bargain, that complicates matters. That could jeopardise the integrity of his estate. If he buys the land from Naomi, a widow, then, you know, there aren't going to be any complications. Naomi's going to die, and he's going to have the land, that's it. But if if with the land comes Ruth, and, and she's of an age where she could have children, and she could bear him a son... That complicates matters. That could jeopardise the integrity of his estate. And he doesn't want to do that. So he turns down the option of buying Naomi's property and marrying Ruth and leaves the field wide open for Boaz, who happily marries Ruth. And despite his age, gives her a baby boy, who just turns out to be the grandfather of King David. So they really do all live happily ever after. And the prayer of the elders and those at the gate is answered. Though the translations can't seem to agree on precisely what the blessing in Ruth chapter 4 verse 11 means. May you have standing in Ephrathah. May you prosper. May you have children. 
may you act worthily, may you achieve great things, any or all of these it might mean. But the same word is used of Boaz in Ruth chapter 2 verse 1 where he's variously described as worthy, wealthy, prominent, rich, a man of standing. And in Ruth 3.11, Boaz uses the same word again when he tells Ruth that everyone knows she is worthy, a woman of noble character. So when a man of that quality gets together with a woman of that quality, the hope is that together they will prosper in every conceivable way, as indeed they do. But it might not have ended that way. Because although Ruth is is seen by everybody as a noble character, she does do this business of of slipping into Boaz's bed. And and maybe Naomi kind of manipulated her into that a little bit. But she does emerge a bit as a highly ambiguous character. You can't help but admire her determination, her virtue, her courage, her faith, her loyalty, her hard work, her decision to leave her own family to take Naomi home, a place where she will be an outsider, But she makes that journey because she wants to make the Lord her refuge, find shelter under his wings. She is the one who takes the initiative to go out gleaning. She works hard in the fields all day. But yet, when push comes to shove, there is that episode in the threshing floor where she just behaves like a Moabite woman. And a cynic might say, well, there you are. You just can't escape your genes, can you? However much she tries, the blood will come out sooner or later. That's the kind of person that she is. She can't help it. Sooner or later, you're going to lapse into the sin of repeating the sins of your parents. So maybe Ruth, like us, is a complicated person with huge amounts of potential for good and ill locked away inside of her. None of us is completely 100% pure or good or righteous or incapable of doing stuff that's bad if we're up against it. Some of us are trapped by our past, by other people's expectations of us, by other people's perceptions of us, and we want to be good, we want to do what is right, but we are dragged down by our upbringing, by the way we've been treated, by circumstances, and try as we might... At times, we just, we just do stuff that we know we should do better than that. But we're all capable of it. And Boaz, Boaz acts as Ruth's redeemer in more ways than one. Yes, he redeems her from her financial difficulties. Yes, he does the honourable thing and makes her his wife. Yes, he gives her children. But that night when she came to him in his bed, he didn't see her or treat her like a prostitute. He still saw her and treated her as a woman of noble character, even though that's not how she was behaving at that point in time. In that sense, he was redeeming her from the worst side of herself and drawing out and fulfilling the best side of who she could be as a person. And when Boaz does that, I catch a glimpse of what it means for Jesus to be our Redeemer. Because he knows us inside out. He sees all the potential there is for goodness in us, and he sees the worst side of us as well. The bits of our character that we've got no control of. The bits that have shaped and moulded us in spite of ourselves. The bits that let us down. The bits that we're ashamed of. 
But if we come to Jesus and make him our refuge, he is the one who accepts us. He is the one who redeems us from everything that threatens to destroy us. He is the one who draws out the goodness that's in us because we're created in the image of God and enables us to fulfill the God-given potential for goodness that each and every one of us has. Like Ruth, we're all mixed-up characters. But if we want to turn out well, the best thing we can do is entrust our lives to Jesus. Because as your Redeemer, he is the one who doesn't judge or condemn you when you get it wrong. He's the one who knows and understands exactly where you're coming from. And he's the one who sees and can fulfill your potential for goodness, who will redeem you and free you to make the most of the life that he's given you, to bless you, to prosper you, to enable you to do well and to achieve your God-given purpose and aim in life. By ourselves we fail because our bad sides come out and get the better of us when we're weak and vulnerable. But Jesus is the one who can draw out the goodness and make our lives straight where they've gone wrong. So let's pray. Lord, we're conscious that we live in fairly comfortable times. And we're conscious as well of how when we're under pressure, we we say and do things that we know we shouldn't. Sometimes it's just a matter of upsetting people around us. Sometimes we, we fail and we fail badly. And you know the things in our history that that make us ashamed, the things that that haunt us, that we're afraid will will drag us down, Um, the bits of who we are that that really we wish weren't there. Lord Jesus, thank you that you see them. And you love us anyway. And you redeem us and you set us free from these parts of our character that have a hold over us, You forgive us, you release us, and you guide us on your paths. Thank you for your grace, which is our security. Thank you for being our redeemer, because without you, we'd be lost.